You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. And welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee, and we're about to launch into a new season. You probably noticed over the summer a few fill-in hosts, because I needed help. <laughs> I was busy and uh, wanted a summer vacation a bit. Um, but first, before anything, I'd like to welcome back, after a three-ish month hiatus, I think, three, four-month hiatus, my colleague and co-host, who's no longer co-hostist with the mostest, just the co-host, Paul Doroshenko. Thank you, Kyla. I'm glad not to be the co-hostess. I'm also glad to be back. Co-hostest. I know. Oh, I, know. Just, I struggled with it. Every time you'd say it, I'd be like, oh, I guess it never rolled off the tongue for me. Really? Oh, I always got good feedback from our listeners on it. Okay, well, we can always reintroduce it if it uh, if you really have to. But if I you're a listener you don't. <laughs> and you want Paul to be called something he doesn't like, <laughs> tweet at us. Um, so this week we've got a couple different topics we're going to deal with. We're going to delve into how post-offense conduct uh, can be used in court against you. Yeah. Yeah, and then we're also going to look at uh, the sort of development of delay arguments on traffic tickets, especially after COVID. Yeah, I mean, this is something that, uh, you know, we're all sort of learning from as it as it uh, unfolds. And you and I have been monitoring this for a while. So a mm-hmm. uh, couple of good topics this week. There's lots that's, uh, lots that's happening and lots that we have thought about covering over the next few months. So I'm looking forward. I'm glad to be back. And I'm looking forward to getting into it. So let's get into it. All right. Well, uh, we start with the decision of uh, Ryan Grob, which is a BC Provincial Court decision. For those of you out there who like to read along on the decision, it's 2021 BC PC 215. Oh, my favorite number. 215. 215. Um, so... Paul, why don't you set the stage? Tell us the story of Ryan Grubb. Oh, well, this one's been in the news. So this was a uh, fellow who had been drinking for some period of time, uh, been using some cocaine. He um, was uh, going to get in his vehicle and people tried to discourage him, yet he still got in his vehicle, uh, drove with a friend, the friend got out, and then he was speeding around. This was on Vancouver Island. And his vehicle was a Ford F-350 jacked up um, and he struck someone and killed him. Uh, Fled the scene and then um, spent several days co-opting his friends to uh, participate in a... um, Cover-up. A cover-up, lying, saying, claiming that the vehicle had uh, had been stolen. Um, this unfortunately is something that people do and, uh, you know, we have a strategy to deal with it. We'll get to, I guess. But, um, so that is sort of where it went before he was ultimately arrested, uh, charged with impaired driving and then, uh, causing death. Well, he also like reported the car stolen. Yep. Well, and then after that, while waiting for trial, he 
was prohibited from driving uh, and drove while prohibited. Yes. So lots of complex facts in there and ultimately it uh, was set for a trial and it appears that he switched counsel at the last minute at the last minute and then it turned into a guilty plea his i mean it was a death case so jail is is presumed and the the range at the low end is two and four years these days and the range at the high end is six to eight years uh and his counsel uh sought three to four years in jail um and uh, crown counsel i think sought six to eight so there was no agreement uh, on anything. Which um, meant the judge could do whatever they wanted. Yep. And uh, it's a judge I, I don't, I'm not really familiar with. There's lots of information about her on the, um, on the provincial court uh, website because she's an Indigenous judge and had a very impressive career as a lawyer before she became a judge about two, three years ago. Uh, and it's a very thoughtful, well-written judgment. There's some interesting things in it. But the uh, sort of the most interesting thing was... Um, the how the court deals with this post offense and pre guilty plea conduct mm-hmm. one of the things that i thought was the most interesting about the judgment was the way that immediate roadside prohibitions factored into the analysis yeah well, that was the that was pre offense conduct but the yeah this individual had previous uh 3 day 7 day 90 day immediate roadside prohibitions. There might've been two 90 day ones. I'm not sure now if the facts, I'd have to pull it up. But um, now this is something that we have talked about a lot because um, immediate roadside prohibitions on your driving record were at least the way it was expressed when Kyle and I were sitting in court during the Civia hearings back in 2011, I guess that was. it was expressed to the court that that this would not be used as something down the road uh, in any penal context. That it wasn't going to be used to to as a as a historical record of something you did because of the frailties of the scheme and because it was administrative. Right, and I mean, if you file your driving record in court, right, your driving record gets filed in court because you're pleading guilty to a driving while prohibited or an impaired driving charge or whatever, um, the driving record, the judge will look at it and the judge might see, oh, you have three or four speeding tickets. And many judges will look at the speeding tickets and they'll go, it's a pattern of bad driving, but it's not related, but also it's, you know, it's a speeding ticket. We all get them. You have more substantive rights to challenge your speeding ticket than you do to challenge your immediate roadside prohibition. And yet I have never had a time in court where a judge has looked at a driving record that had prior immediate roadside prohibitions on it and said, well, he's had prior IRPs. So given that there's a really truncated review process that's limited and constrained by statute, and it's not an offense, I'm not gonna give that significant weight. Legally speaking, though, the analysis of the weight that should be given to an IRP on your driving record, to my mind, is much less than should be given to a speeding ticket. Well, a speeding ticket is proven beyond a reasonable doubt, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the, 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 the onus is on you to dispute it, but the onus then becomes the Crown's onus to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. An IRP 
is presumptively guilty. Yes. Um, they've written that into law. Yes. Um, if you dispute it, you have to go beyond a balance of probabilities to succeed in the dispute. Well, I mean, it, technically, you only have to go to a balance of probabilities, but as it plays out practically, it, it tends to be greater than a balance well, of probabilities. Well, I mean, they, they wrote in that, that change that you challenged, um, which... You have to prove your innocence. You have to prove your innocence. Uh, in this case, I just found it. It's a paragraph 83 of the decision. Uh, he had five driving prohibitions that resulted in immediate roadside prohibitions for 24 hours, twice for three days, and twice for 90 days. Uh, it says a peace officer will issue a 90-day immediate roadside prohibition, notice of driving prohibition, when following a demand to provide a sample on an approved screening device when a driver has a blood alcohol concentration of 80 milligrams of alcohol and 100 milliliters of blood or refuses a breath test. Well, the problem there with that is, okay, that this is a, like, judges are not conducting immediate roadside. You know, the provincial no. court judges don't deal with this stuff. No. Um, and the point is that that is an ASD result. Yeah. Um, and, of course, we have these issues with respect to ASD results being used in court. Correct. An ASD test result is not admissible as proof of a fact at trial. So similarly, it should not be admissible as proof of a fact at sentencing. In the end, uh, the, judge, the judge's conclusion at the end of the paragraph is, likewise, as per the court in La Casse, I note that the driving prohibitions indicate a pattern of Mr. Grob, G-R-O-B, Grob, Grob, being irresponsible and driving when alcohol is a factor. So it's sort of almost careful wording there where I think mm -hmm. the judge here understands that there's an issue with respect to relying on these things because she doesn't, you know, it's not, she just she doesn't say it explicitly. She say, says there's the patterns established, the patterns established. So it's still not, it's not dealt with there. Um, anytime I've done a sentencing on anything where my clients got an immediate roadside prohibition on their record, I tell the judge of why that should not be used. And I, you know, the judges have not applied it. Like they've not, they, they, they haven't referred to my submissions, but they also have not, you know, then gone they and used the They haven't accepted or rejected your submissions. Yeah, they've yeah. skirted the issue. They've skirted the issue each time. Uh, this is going beyond skirting the issue. And one can understand in a, in a death case where there's a, a record like that, particularly if you're not, you know, us or even a Supreme Court judge who has had to hear, you know, a bunch of your IRP judicial reviews, where it would not be considered in the same way, or maybe in this case, the counsel didn't feel that it was necessary to explain it. I think sometimes we assume that judges understand mm -hmm. how it should be interpreted. Mm -hmm. I would say that, you know, from my perspective, by virtue of the fact that an ASD um, result is not to be used for punishment in any punitive manner, that it should not be used in a sentencing, I think, period. I don't even think it should be brought up. Uh, for years, we would have cases where, well, he's got five 24-hour driving prohibitions on his record, and I'll tell you, I don't think any judges really considered that. They might have factored it into the lecture that, that they gave, mm -hmm. but not the sentence that they, that they issued. But here, when you see it being used as the judge coming to the conclusion that he's irresponsible, a pattern of being irresponsible, that becomes problematic. I don't think it would lead to a, a different decision, 
in this case. This guy got a long, a long sentence. Um, I don't think it would change that, but it's a, it's a certainly an interesting concern. So tell us now, Paul, how did this post-offense conduct factor in its sentencing? Like we yeah, know at yeah. trial that post-offense conduct sometimes can be admissible mm-hmm. to try and establish guilt. Guilty people are likely to do things that, the reasoning being that guilty people are likely to do things that cover up their guilt. What role does it play in sentencing? Uh, this was fascinating, actually. It was, it was it was a good one to see because it's rare um, that you can explain it to your client uh, <laughs> without a good example. You know, lots of times you're standing in court and you're like, oh, God, I wish my client had done that or I wish they had listened to me with that when after they came into my office. But it's not often that you have an example from a decision where you can point to bad post-conduct behavior. Yeah, usually that, it's it's them phoning and they're like, hey, uh, maybe I should report my car stolen. And then going, no, that would be the fucking stupidest thing you could do. You well, don't do that. That's a crime. That's another crime. It's a crime to cover up a crime. It's a worse crime. I can tell you over the years, you know, I, I, I taught a class in hit and run investigations at one point back in 2016. Yes. Um, and, uh, and I did it with Detective Mike Gilbert from the Vancouver Police. And one of the things that I do anytime my client is in this situation, they've now reported the car stolen, they've, they've had an accident or whatever, uh, I always get on the phone immediately and I phone the police and say there's, it wasn't stolen. And just to tell them right away. Now, the police are never investigating a stolen car because no. they all know. Uh, but, you know, I'm going to come clean to the extent that I can, you know, with obviously the instru- after explaining it to my client and taking instructions um, to, to head that off. That is not what happened in this case um, <laughs> because he didn't uh, he didn't get a lawyer. Well, I mean it's 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 funny in that it's instructive. It's sad mostly um, that this is what happened because the judge goes through the uh, aggravating or the uh, mitigating factors um, and uh, and comes looks at the aggravating factors here in this case and the aggravating factors that she concluded were high rate of speed. The vehicle was traveling at 84 to 99 kilometers per hour at the time of the collision. So struck a fellow a pedestrian uh, at that speed. Uh, obviously, he wouldn't have survived. It was a 50 kilometer an hour speed limit. Uh, there is a significant, of course, and I'm sure this was explained to the court, significant difference in speeds when humans are struck. 50 kilometers an hour is not good. 30 kilometers an hour, you have a much greater chance of surviving. Uh, 84 to 99 kilometers per hour, you're not going to survive. Then the judge goes into his Motor Vehicle Act record, obviously deals with these immediate roadside prohibitions, but also talks about uh, speeding offenses. And somehow this fellow managed to have an offense after this, um, uh, after this incident. And uh, that's the post-accident driving conduct. So uh, he drove without a driver's license because he wouldn't have had one. Um, and uh, drove while prohibited, while he was basically awaiting trial for this. Um, but mostly, the biggest concern here was the steps to avoid detection and prosecution through deception. And, you know, what is that? What, what is happening when a, uh, an individual is doing that? Well, it's a, I mean, it's an offense to the whole concept of our justice system. Mm-hmm. We got a lot of rights, you know, we got a right to silence. We don't have to 
assist the police in any respect. All you have to do is tell them who you are and not much more. Uh, but uh, to take active steps to thwart the justice system from functioning properly um, is something that uh, is obviously uh, you know looked on very very harshly by the courts for good reasons and um, and that's understandable. It's a uh, you know it's a, it's a it, 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 it's an attempt to undermine the justice system. Um, the, uh, and that's why it's considered, I mean, I don't want to use a non-legal term, but it's not just an aggravating factor on sentence. It's like super aggravating. Like, I mean, the, the court even in this judgment goes through a discussion of some of the aggravating factors, like whether or not this is a large vehicle, um, that type of thing. But I think a lot of the reason for the judge's rejection of what defense counsel proposed really hinged on that conduct after the fact. Well, there was another thing that I think really hinged on it too, although the discussion isn't isn't large, but it was mentioned as the last thing, and that was that this individual was warned not to drink and drive as he got in his vehicle and was like, you know, fuck you, I'm getting behind the wheel and driving. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I we have seen, and it seems to be almost consistent now, even a minor criminal hit and run will get you a, at least a day to a week in jail. We've talked about this before mm-hmm. uh, and the reason for that. In this case, it's not just a hit and run. It's a hit and run followed by putting other people in the situation where you're creating a conspiracy to lie to the court uh, and to and to thwart the justice system. So, um, you know, that's I think probably about the worst thing that you can do. Uh, and it's so offensive in a circumstance where there's a death, and it's a death that you're so badly responsible for. Um, you know, it's one thing if you hit somebody at 30 kilometers an hour and you stop and even if you're drunk, you know, there's a good chance they're going to live, um, you know, and deal with it. If you're driving like a complete asshole and you kill somebody and leave them alone on the street and then you work to fabricate a lie, nobody's going to have any sympathy for you. Nobody. So he didn't have much for guilty pleas. And ultimately when it came down to it, um, it was those, uh, those aggravating factors. There was a uh, interesting discussion about his truck because there are provisions in law that um, uh, <laughs> apparently pursuant to Section 724.1e of the Criminal Code, um, aggravating factors, of course, reasonable doubt. Uh, he was uh, driving a large vehicle within the definition of Section 320.22f. I've never looked at that section, 320.22f. Have you looked at it? No. Okay. Well, apparently a large vehicle is not defined in the criminal code, uh, but there's some provision about driving a large vehicle. And so there was um, an obligation here on the Crown because they were alleging that it was a large vehicle to call the evidence and prove beyond a reasonable doubt that it was a large vehicle. But apparently there's no definition of it. This is a new provision in the criminal code in 320. Um, he was driving an F-350, which is a, a, a one-ton truck. It's probably got four wheels in the back um, and uh, it weighs 4.5 tons and it was jacked up, but the judge came to the conclusion that hadn't been proven beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, it wasn't a commercial vehicle or anything. So that was an interesting little discussion there about large vehicle and what the Crown's going to have to prove if they intend to uh, to rely on that. But most interesting is for the post um, post-incident conduct and it's going to make it easier to 
uh, advise your clients in the future, Kyla. Mm -hmm. It will. More so your clients than mine because you can explain to them. If you do this and you're convicted, you will go to jail for a lot longer. (laughs) And I've often explained to people, there's good things you can do. You know, you can use this as a, as a turning point and hopefully you do. Um, and, uh, I've explained to people some of the things that they could consider doing and I've, I've tried to advise them, but now I can advise them and tell them that it's a difference between a, you know, a three year, four year jail sentence and a six, eight year jail sentence. Yes. Yeah. All right. So let's move on because we have a second topic that we've promised our listeners already, uh, which is, uh, the question of delay in traffic court. And there've been a couple of decisions recently, uh, related to delay. The most recent, a case called Regina and Tan, uh, and this is out of Richmond. Um, it was an individual who had a hearing date, um, scheduled for his traffic ticket, which was then adjourned automatically when the courts shut down for COVID. And it took a long time for him to be given her. her. Okay. Sorry. Whatever. I, it, it, could, it could matter to her. Uh, it took a long time for them to be given the next date. It was issued in July. The ticket was July 2019, right? Uh, well, the chron- chronology is kind of strange. So um, it was, uh, uh, the ticket was in July 2019. And then, uh, of course, March 17th, everything was shut down. Um, the uh, hearing date was set, I think, for... Uh, um, May or something, uh, the, uh, applicant, uh, or the, May 12th. uh, yeah, the, uh, individual went to adjourn it because, uh, she was in China and couldn't get back. Um, ultimately it ended up being scheduled, um, for a year later in April. Um, and, uh, before the, uh, uh, before the hearing, uh, or, or at the hearing rather, she applied to uh, for the charter remedy. And so of course it was adjourned for the sake of going from traffic court to in front of a provincial court judge for the, uh, for the charter remedy. So um, the judge broke it down. And of course there's a couple of interesting things here. So we have the Jordan timeline. Kyla, what's the Jordan timeline? 18 months in provincial court. So, Don't worry about the 30 months for Supreme Court. Your ticket's not going to get there. (laughs) Well, and so the interesting thing is, I mean, it's been sort of accepted. Uh, Nobody's really addressed the aspect that this is a ticket um, in all the cases because none of the cases that we've found so far have fell within the Jordan timeline because, of course, the timeline has to be calculated based on institutional delay. And so it can't be a circumstance where a person's delaying uh, for the sake of delay or to jerk around the court uh, or delaying because they're unavailable. I mean, certainly there are aspects of of um, the delay that you might look at and say, well, that's attributable to, to defense that isn't necessarily. Like, for example, if your counsel's not available and your counsel scheduled this thing and, you know, your counsel's not available, that's that can be considered court delay. Uh, but uh, ultimately, um, you know, the issue started off when Jordan came out was did Jordan even apply to traffic tickets because Jordan was talking about uh, uh, criminal offenses 
you you do have the same charter rights in the traffic ticket context, but because they weren't really taking place, well, they're, they're taking place in provincial court, but they're taking place in provincial court traffic division, I always thought that there might be a different presumptive ceiling. I also think that the presumptive ceiling for traffic court, if you look at some of the earlier cases pre-TAN that talk about how long it takes to get a traffic court date, would be lower, something in the range of 10 months, because there's one case, I think Taylor, or case before Taylor, where the court said it is in and of itself unreasonable that it could take 10 months to get a court date for a 15-minute matter. Yeah, and I think that's a there's a good argument for that. Um, it should be something that shouldn't hang over your head for forever, but it's also shouldn't be something that you have to put extraordinary court um, resources into by virtue of the fact that it is still a traffic ticket. Yes. Uh, ultimately, in the end, the judge went through and calculated all of the days here and came to the conclusion that it was uh, uh, 22 months and 23 days. Um, but then breaking it down, uh, it ended up being under 18 months because the uh, it was a net delay of 14 months and 29 days that was attributable to the crown. Not yes. less than the 18 months, 14 months, 29 days, so 15 months. But then, of course, at that point, you turn to the next step of the test, which is, which is, is that unreasonable in the circumstances and for other, you know, is there other circumstances that should take it below the presumptive ceiling of, of 18 months? And there was nothing, there was no evidence here that was, I think, even called on that point. It was just, how do you calculate the 18 months? So the point is we get, you know, the reason that I think that we have to talk about this and that we will continue to have to talk about this is because we get so many people who think that they are, should be entitled to a delay argument. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it is not uncommon to have to dissuade somebody from trying to adjourn for a illegitimate reason in the hopes that they can set up a delay argument. And we have to discourage people from that. <laughs> well, in fact, this individual, regularity. Was, there was some blame placed on this individual in the TAN case because of the adjournment application that had been submitted for the May date, which ultimately ended up adjourned anyway. And it was kind of like, well, obviously they wanted it adjourned, so they can't complain about that adjournment. Yeah. And, you know, I, I have made very few delay arguments in court over the course of my life. And, um, you know, when you file your delay argument, when are you supposed to file it? So, you know, you know that it's going to go well down the road when you schedule the hearing. Mm -hmm. And I was faulted for after scheduling the hearing um, in a matter and then applying a month before making a delay argument, the judge saying, well, you knew that it was going to be this many months down the road. Why didn't you file the delay argument the day after you scheduled the hearing this many months down the road? <laughs> and you're like, you know, I... I guess I'm not allowed to advance a delay argument unless I notify everybody every day that I'm advancing a delay argument. Yes. You know, things unfold and things change, of course, as you're, as it's playing out. But in this case, of course, show up on the trial date. And, and we've done that before, too, where we've shown up on the trial date and we've needed it to go to, to uh, a provincial court in front of a judge for whatever reason. But in any event, so uh, Miss Tam was faulted for that. Tam. Paul? Yes. It's been a long time. It has been a while, yeah. And I know that all this time you haven't been on the podcast, you've been missing one thing. 
Well, I have been missing one thing, Kyla. There's no doubt it is the... Ridiculous Driver of the Week! The Ridiculous Driver of the Week! And this is a good one. This has all of my favorite elements of things that make me laugh. First of all, Florida. Second of all, naked person. Third of all, driving a golf cart. In this case, through an armed police standoff. So picture the armed police standoff. There's police cars circling the 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 building or residence or whatever it is. There's police a police officer with a megaphone. Guns drawn. You know, Davey, throw down your dr- guns. We know you're in there. You can come out with your hands up. Meanwhile. Miss Smith, Jessica Smith, is on her golf cart probably drunk, um, her breath smelled of alcohol anyway, uh, completely naked, uh, just driving along, not a care in the world. And she goes touring, driving through in between the person who's <laughs> blockaded in a house and the police cars that are there and the police that are at the standoff. Yeah. yeah. So she ended up charged, obviously, with obstruction. Um, and uh, their claim is that her antics put multiple deputies at risk for potentially getting shot at. I don't know. She's kind of like a human, drunk, naked golf cart riding shield. I think, uh, yeah, there's that. I also think that she was might have been a distraction that would have allowed them to get in there had they used this opportunity. Yeah. It's like a, you know, I'm sure the person inside the house was was shocked and incapable of of uh, shooting back for a moment as the golf cart woman went by um but uh, yeah hilarious naked in a golf cart uh and i'm surprised she wasn't charged with uh, a dwi well i mean i've always thought that it's kind of debatable whether you can get a dui on things like golf carts or scooters but there have been changes to laws that sort of expand the definition of, of a, a conveyance. Um, and it seems likely that these types of things and the more electronic conveyances we have are going to require new regulation. Well, we already see some, right? It's uh, Things are coming in and we'll discuss it over the next few months. But uh, Technology you know, is leading. We've got, we've got people with electric scooters riding in bike lanes now and there's areas where golf carts and quads and four by fours in smaller communities yep um the uh these are things the government has to regulate so i think we're going to see some legislation soon uh dealing with the regulation of these types of things but uh feel free to disagree listeners if you want to message us give us all your opinion we'll share it in an upcoming episode of the podcast or we won't, depending on what your opinion is, honestly. Well, we can always discuss we're, it. We're going we're gonna to vet the opinions because, you know, it's I mean, the I internet. Guess, I guess should, uh, the, the, you know, my, I would just think right now, should these scooters, like electric scooters, um, should that be something you can get an impaired on? Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, uh, I, I, my personal view is that they pose so little risk and we should encourage people to be using a conveyance that poses so little risk. That I don't think you should be, but you know, feel free to uh, to disagree. Anyway, I, Kyle, I think we're at the end. 
that is the end of the podcast. So uh, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes. Um, if you need to talk to us for any reason, you maybe reported your car stolen after crashing it into a bridge and all of those types of things, um, give us a call. You can find us at 604-685-8889 or find us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.